We're continuing this morning with our current Sunday morning teaching series entitled Revolution. I hope you're following along in the study guide that we've written to coincide with this teaching series. And I hope that this is becoming, uh, you know, my goal for this is that it becomes more than just merely a Sunday morning lesson, a Sunday morning sermon, or perhaps even entertainment, but rather that we together look into the pages of God's Word and discover what is so important, more so now than it has ever been, the biblical blueprint for what God designed the church to look like. Today is lesson six in our lesson series, Revolution, Christ Over Culture. And if you've been uh, here with us in the last several weeks, or if you've ever read the book of Acts that we are studying in this lesson series, then you know that prior to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, there are a smorgasbord of incredible experiences and dynamic events. I mean, from the, uh, and I won't bore you with all of the details that we've already covered, but from the ascension of Christ, the incredible uh, experience where uh, those believers literally saw him carried up into the sky and they're just just awestruck there and and two angels say to them why do you stand here gazing the same man who's taken from you will so come in like manner and they go about their their business or his business perhaps is better explained and they uh, dwell in an upper room in Jerusalem per the instruction of Jesus. He had said, stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. They begin to look at their own lack and their own uh, uh, sense of defeat, I guess you would say, because they were reminded of the failures of Judas Iscariot. And they look at their following and they say, we must have someone to take Judas's place to fill his absence. They prayed and they chose Matthias. The next occurrence that we read about, in chapter 2, they're in that same upper room. I believe it was the same one in which they took the Last Supper with Jesus before His crucifixion. And they're in that upper room and they are doing just as Jesus had instructed them to do. And they're in one heart, one mind, and one accord. That means they're together, unified together. It doesn't mean they agreed on every single minute detail, but they were unified together in why they were there and what they were doing. And then they began to experience something unlike anything that had ever happened before in history and probably really ever happened since. And this dynamic experience would lead to substantial instantaneous growth for the church. In a day's time on the day of Pentecost, which was the feast that was uh, given by, to, to Israel to celebrate the giving of the law, there's a great amount of detail there that I don't have time to go into today. But on that day, the church literally grows from 120 people to approximately 3,100 and 20 people and we are left with a uh with a, with a specific differentiation, and I know this is a couple chapters back from where we're going to pick up at this morning, but we're left with a specific differentiation at the end of that second chapter where Luke says in verse 47 specifically that they were all together, they had all things common, and they were at peace with all men. And so that verse doesn't really necessarily make sense to us reading in hindsight the narrative of Acts 
But when we look at what the, the author is really trying to drive home to us, Luke is saying to us here that at that point there had not yet been persecution. I mean, the only, uh, the only resistance that the church had faced was on the day of Pentecost when a few people said, uh, these men are drunk with wine. And, you know, Peter stands up and he says, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, maybe if it was 5 o'clock, it'd be a different story. But it's 9 in the morning and these men are not drunk with wine. And that was the only instance of abrasion that we see from the world towards the church. And then more incredible events continue to occur. After Luke's strong differentiation that we're going to play off of in the 47th verse of the second chapter, they were in common. They, they had peace with all men. Then we see that Simon Peter and John are traveling to the temple. They're going there to worship. Christianity was still at this point viewed as a sect of Judaism. Much like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And so Simon, Peter, and John, they're going to the temple to worship at the hour of prayer, the third, uh, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they're going along there and there by a gate that Luke describes as being the gate called Beautiful, uh, that we don't really know how to differentiate which gate it is. But Luke describes it as the gate called Beautiful. And there is a man who is a beggar. He's above 40 years old, and he's never walked a day in his life. He's been crippled since his mother's womb. And so this man is laying there, and he's saying... Would you please give me something that I may sustain myself? There were no welfare programs. There were no disability programs. There were no soup kitchens or food pantries or anything of that nature. This was the man's only hope. And he looks at Simon Peter and John. And Simon Peter looks at him and he says, look at me. And the man makes eye contact with him and he says, I don't have any money. That's the last thing a beggar would ever want to hear. I don't have any money, but what I do have in the name of Jesus of Nazareth rise and walk and here's where things really 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 start to get crazy this crippled man gets up and begins to walk and run and leap and jump through the temple and praising God and I mean it was a prayer gathering like had never happened at the temple in in generations past and this man obviously draws a great deal of attention from everybody that's around. And people begin to scratch their heads and they say, wait a minute, that's the guy that's been sitting outside that gate begging for alms and asking for money. And he's been crippled and now he's walking and running and leaping. What in the world is going on? One would think, we could imagine in our minds that this would be the threshold upon which God would engulf the entirety of the nation of Israel in His grace under the new covenant. One would think think that this would be the moment and the time in which they would look to him and say certainly Jesus was the Messiah and certainly these men are following Jesus and certainly we will jump on board with him and do so. But that is not at all what would happen. What would happen as we read in the fourth chapter and specifically in the first three verses and then for the remainder of the chapter when we see the church's response, what would happen here is the beginning of persecution from the outside world towards the church. And it is noteworthy to see that it begins within Judaism itself. But how do we come from a scenario where they've had an incredible experience in the, around the ascension of Jesus and on the day of Pentecost and with this crippled man who is now made whole and now he doesn't have to beg and plead for money to make a living anymore. And now all of a sudden the church begins to uh, kind of be covered with this dark cloud of negativity. We could possibly 
at first glance with the naked eye. Deem this as a scenario linked to the old adage that all good things must come to an end. But shortly I'm going to present to you that there's something more going on here. But let me pause there for just a moment and, and just kind of think about that old adage, all good things must come to an end because again, at first glance with the naked eye, it seems as if that's what's happening here. You see, we've all had that, that great job that we just thought, man, this is the job I'm going to work and I'm going to retire from. And then somebody gets fired or somebody quits that's above you and a new guy comes into control and then all you know what breaks loose and man this just kind of gets crazy right or maybe just maybe you've been on that weekend getaway with your lovely spouse and no kids and man you just had the time of your lives and y'all have gotten along together so great and then you get in the car on the drive home and and uh, she says look at that pink car and you say that's not a pink car that's a blue car and then it just explodes and you're like welcome back to the real world Sometimes things catch us by surprise. I told you that this summer my son, who's 15, got his first job. And I try not to talk about him much from up here and try to just use my daughter Erica. But uh, something really funny happened in relation to this lesson today. He got his first job and we were with my grandfather and visiting with him. And, and Zeke was telling him, he said, I got my first paycheck. And, and of course, granddaddy said, well, did you take it straight to the bank? And well, it's direct deposit. It goes to the bank. So you got a checking account? Yes, I have a checking account. And granddaddy looks at him and says, well, since you have a checking account, I've got something to give you. And he gets up and he walks away and I can just see the twinkle in Zeke's eyes. You know, this is going to be a bunch of money. I mean, he's just, you know, and I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen myself. And he comes back with a checkbook cover with a calculator and an ink pen. We've all had those disappointing moments in life. And this is kind of sort of what's going on for the church here as we enter the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. They've had mountaintop after mountaintop after mountaintop. And now they're covered with this cloud of negativity that is producing a great deal of persecution from the outside world, specifically within Judaism. The success story of this man's healing, as we would think, would lead to good things, but rather it led to an unanticipated resistance from the world around them, in which we will see several applicable principles that the early believers lived out. Follow with me in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people. Notice they were not necessarily disturbed about the healing of the man, but they're greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening at that time. So if you may picture this in your minds, this man is running through the temple, he's leaping, he's praising God, and everybody's like, what in the world's going on here? And the disciples just begin to declare Jesus. They say, man, look at this platform that we've been given. And they begin to declare his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. And then the temple leaders come along and they begin to say, ah, no, you can't say that here. You can't act that way here. You can't teach that sort of 
thing here. And so they did this. They said, we're going to deal with these guys, but you know what? We're not going to deal with them right now. Now, it's very noteworthy to me that later on in the book of Acts, when we see persecution continue to arise as a repetitive theme, that the, the uh, followers of Christ are dealt with almost immediately, every single time. But at this point in time, early in the, in the narrative of Acts, the church is not really yet viewed as a credible threat to the world or to Judaism. Because they said, well, we'll just throw them in jail and we'll deal with them tomorrow. We've got to go home and have supper right now, but we'll deal with them tomorrow. The fourth verse of Acts chapter 4 is parenthetical in nature. Luke pauses and he tells us a little bit about what has happened in the midst of all of this, these things that have transpired. And he says thousands more got saved. And now... The number of the church is like 5,000 plus. And then we pick up in the fifth verse. And in the fifth verse, it's the next day. And so Simon, Peter, and John have the opportunity to defend themselves, or I guess so we would say, and uh, they're, they're brought before a court to be tried, not necessarily for the healing of the man, but for the proclamation of the fact that his healing came from Jesus. Picture this in your mind. They're brought there uh, around some of the uh, uh, most affluent Jewish leaders of their day. The scripture denotes for us that they're, uh, they're, they're reporting to Anais, the high priest, and several other men who are of high priestly descent. They're brought to center stage in verse 7. We're literally told that they put them, men, the, the followers of Christ, right in the middle of the conversation, and they begin to quiz them. They begin to inquire of them specifically, by what power did you make this man whole? Now, they did not say how did you do it or they did not say why did you do it and they did not say was this really the man or do you have a lookalike that you brought in and you're just trying to cause a scene but there was definitely credibility to the miracle that had occurred here but they said by what name by what power did you do this? And I think this was, this was like Simon Peter is chomping at the bit, man. He just cannot wait. You mean you want to ask me how this guy got healed? Man, I've been wanting to tell you. I've been trying to tell you for days and weeks and months and even years when Jesus was still walking here with us. Verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 account for us Simon Peter's dynamic response. A mini sermon, if you will, declaring to these Jewish leaders, that the same Jesus that they condemned to crucifixion was the very one who had healed this otherwise hopeless and helpless beggar. And Peter is put on trial there, and John is put on trial there, and all the Jewish leaders are just kind of left scratching their head. Again, at this point in time in the, narrative of, in the narrative of Acts, the church is not yet perceived as a credible threat to Judaism. And so they're just kind of scratching their heads. They're saying, what in the world is going? on here and they look at each other and they begin to deliberate and have a little bit of conversation and about the 13th verse they said you know what we're going to let these guys go but guys here's what you need to do stop talking about Jesus stop coming in here to the temple and telling us about this man who's a Messiah that's dead and not even here with us that was their perception obviously he was not but just stop talking about this guy he's out of the picture we want him out of the picture and we don't want to hear anything else 
about him. And so they declared a release. But then, get this, there's, there, there's a pivot in the story. It's like this. It's like the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders are saying, okay, you guys can go on, but don't talk about Jesus anymore. Just go on and we, just get out of here. We don't have time to deal with you. And then all of a sudden down the hallway runs that same cripple, formerly crippled beggar was still walking and leaping and praising God. And he just kind of comes right back on the scene in the middle of the fourth chapter. And then the uproar uh, re-emerges, if you will. And so the Jewish leaders say, okay, this is not done. This is not over with. The people are in uproar. The people are beginning to uh, follow Simon Peter and John and all these other disciples who claim Jesus was the Messiah. And we've got to deal with it again. So they've already went through the official trial with the high priest and others who are of high priestly descent. And now it's like a remake. It's like a rewind. And they go back through another unofficial trial. But guess what? Simon Peter, once again, along with John, along with any of the other followers of Christ who were there in that moment in time, recognized that this was the opportunity to proclaim the goodness of God through His Son, Jesus. But yet, how many times in our personal lives do we look for God and know He's there and expect Him and, and have complete and total utter faith in Him when we're on the mountaintop and, and, and experiencing a mountaintop experience, but yet when things begin to go sour in our lives, it's as if we embrace the polar opposite. It's when things go sour in our lives, we say, God, where are you at? What are you doing? Why have you forsaken me? Are you even here with me? I feel so alone. I feel like you've called me to this and now you're not here with me. God, what in the world is going on. Such was not the attitude of Simon Peter and John and the followers of Jesus, not here nor anywhere in the narrative of the book of Acts. And I want to look this morning at a few fundamental truths that I think were fueling the perseverance of those believers. How could they stand there being tried for doing a good thing? How could they stand there and, and be criticized and ridiculed because they embraced Jesus, the Messiah, that God gave to Israel? I want to look at three things this morning I believe are key fundamental truths that fueled the perseverance of these early believers. First of all, I believe we see within this story the fact that this was a fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. Did you get that? This was a fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. Now you say, wait a minute, Pastor. I know that when they had that experience in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, I know that that was an, a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus had made, right? He said, stay here until this happens. And it was so clear and so evident that that's what happened. But how can we say <clears throat> that the emergence of persecution was the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. You see, the teaching of Jesus, the verbiage of Jesus was oftentimes perceived as very strange and uninterpretable to the ears of his followers. We look at multiple times throughout the ministry and teaching of Jesus where he would declare to his followers, no, everything is not going to be easy. Everything is not going to be good. In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He likened following him to taking up one's very cross, which was a certain symbolism 
of death. In my mind, I go back to John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, which occurred towards the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And there Jesus declares to his followers, he says, If the world hates you, you must know that it hated me first long before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of that, this world hates you. And they're left scratching their heads and saying, God, or Jesus, what in the world do you mean? The world's going to hate us. I thought something incredible, something revolutionary was going to come from what you were doing. You see, we, like those disciples, are predisposed to a, to a perception of Christianity that is hyper-positive. And we as pastors and preachers and teachers are guilty of presenting the gospel in this manner. And I'm not here to discourage you this morning. I'm not here to be pessimistic. But I want to say to you that a relationship with Jesus and a commitment to that relationship does not ensure that your life is going to be easier. Are you with me this morning? A commitment to Jesus in pursuance of that relationship does not ensure that your life will be easier. And I've dealt with so many people in 20 years of being a pastor who are just flabbergasted by the fact that they gave their life to Jesus a month ago and now they're just faced with fiery trial after fiery trial after fiery trial. And they're like, what in the world is going on here? We're predispositioned to, to have a perception that Christianity is oh so positive. But this is not the description that Jesus gave. For his followers. I believe that somewhere in that moment, excuse me, somewhere in that moment as Peter and John were facing that first element of persecution, I believe somewhere in that moment they realized, hey, this is what Jesus was talking about. This is what he told us about. This is what he warned us about. And this is what he tried to prepare us for. There is nothing that knocks us off of our feet other than the, any more than the concept that we often embrace that God has somehow abandoned us in the midst of our trials. Or perhaps that we somehow have abandoned Him and therefore there's a separation. But when we, like those apostles, embrace the fact that Jesus said there's going to be days like this. More than mama said there's going to be days like this. Jesus said there's going to be days like this. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. There in the midst of that persecution, those believers realized this was a fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. And check this out. If this was a fulfillment of his, of his promise, then certainly something good must come of this otherwise difficult scenario. The second thing, the second fundamental truth that I believe these men, these men and women embraced completely and totally that fueled their perseverance through this persecution was the realization of the platform that the Holy Spirit had now built for them to declare the gospel through. Now, you would think that this uh, persecution, this experience, this dilemma would incite fear in the minds of these guys. And you would think that they would begin to say things in their minds like, Oh man, we got to be quiet about Jesus. We can't be as bold in our declaration about Him now. We've got to tone it down just a bit. But such was not the case. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Peter made that, that very bold declaration in his response to the Jewish leaders. He said, Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by this name the man stands here before you whole. So fear had no place in the minds of those guys as they're being persecuted, as this dark cloud of negativity is hanging over the church, but yet there's no fear within their minds. What is happening? What is going on here that's leading them to a courageous attitude rather than a fearful attitude? I believe as we scroll down through the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, we find a powerful answer to that question. Chapter 4, verse 28. The scripture says there that the disciples made the declaration that they submit to God to do whatever His hand and His purpose had predestined to occur. Did you get that? Here they are on a stage built by persecution. They're being ridiculed by their, for their faith in Christ. They're being ridiculed by, for their involvement uh, of healing of this crippled man. And they make the declaration, we're okay with it because we signed up for whatever your hand and your purpose has determined to do. Exegetically, this is even more powerful than it is to the naked eye. The word whatever is not, and, and ladies don't get offended for, to me, but it's not the definition of guys when your wife says whatever. You know, I saw a motorcycle, but I used to wheel and deal with motorcycles. I saw a motorcycle on Craigslist once. Like it was brand new, had like 160 miles on it. It was for sale really cheap. And I scrolled down through the ad and at the bottom of it, it says, only selling because do whatever you want doesn't mean what I thought it did when I asked my wife. That'll dawn on you in a moment or you guys are just too terrified to laugh because you're sitting next to your wife or something, I don't know. But whatever has a totally different definition here. In the Greek, it's hosos. And hosos means an encompassing totality. So it's not just like they're saying, whatever God, but they're saying, God, whatever. Literally anything and everything, that's what we signed up for to follow you. And the preceding word, to do whatever your hand and your purpose have predetermined or predestined. The word purpose is in the Greek, boule. And boule gives the ideology of, of an argumentative conversation between a council of people. So it's as if a meeting has occurred in heaven, or this is how the apostles are trusting God. As if a meeting has occurred in heaven and they've, they've deliberated what is the best scenario for the kingdom. And then they settled on something, they said, here it is, and they handed it over. That's what the disciples meant when they said, according to your hand and purpose. You see, they did not view this as persecution, but rather they viewed this as a platform on which they would stand and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. When trials come my way, when storms come my way, when difficulty comes my way, maybe you're living in it right now. What if we took the same perception? A perception to say, not God, why is this so bad? But rather to say, God, how can I declare your wonderful truth? from this platform of persecution that has been built for me. And finally, I believe that they recognized. And this, my friend, is oh so glorious. I believe they recognized that in the midst of this persecution, 
having been thrown against their will into jail for a night and then in the middle of this courtroom to be tried by this religious council. I believe that they realized, even under that dark cloud of negativity, that the very presence of God was with them. Now, I didn't say the presence of God had been with them a few days before at Pentecost. Or the presence of God was with them a few days before in the upper room. Or that the presence of God was with them a few days before when Jesus ascended into heaven. Or even that the presence of God was with them outside the temple at the gate called Beautiful when the crippled man got up and walked. No, I think they fully realized that they were engulfed in His presence even under this dark cloud of negativity. That even there in the midst of persecution that God was with them. But how many times do we think, God, you were with me in church this morning when it was good. It was good, man. Things were, worship was incredible and I just felt your presence. And then later in the week when we're persecuted, when we face trials, when we face difficulties, it's like, God, where are you even at? I want to say to you this morning, these apostles embrace the ideology in which they knew that just as God was with them in the upper room, likewise He was with them in the courtroom. That's the upper room and the courtroom. That's where things were really, really, really good, and the courtroom where things were really, really, really bad. But in their minds, in their ideology of God's presence, they had, they had adopted this ideology that said there's no differentiator between the two because His presence is so incredibly great that it is here with us in the courtroom today. I'm reminded of the powerful words of King David. In Psalm chapter 139, verses 1 through 10, he said, O oh Lord, you have searched me. And you've known me. And what I want to drive home to you this morning is really in the later part of this chapter. But it's so noteworthy to realize that David begins with the concept that God knows every single thing about him. You have searched me. And you've known me. And you've seen me when I sit down. And when I get up and you understand my thoughts even from afar off, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and you're intimately acquainted with all of my ways even before there's a word on my tongue. Before, O oh Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed behind and before me and you've laid your hand upon me. All of this knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. God, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, some of your translations say hell. This is really just the Jewish word for the grave. If I make my bed in the grave, if I'm dead and gone, I am still with you when this life is over. The concept of God. Is that he is everywhere, but not just that he is everywhere. But look at how David, uh, look at how he explains this with such intellect. Where can I go from your spirit? So in, in the Jewish mind, the spirit was who we really are. It's the soul that's encompassed from the, that, that's, that's uh, bordered, I guess you would say, that's boundaried within the body. And David is saying here, I cannot go from your spirit because your spirit does not have the boundary of human flesh. 
and your presence. That means you are where you are and you are everywhere because with you there is no boundary. This was not a pantheistic statement in which David is saying everything is God, but rather God is everywhere. He is omnipresent, as we say in the theological world. You're everywhere. You're everywhere. The God of the court of the upper room is God in the courtroom. You're everywhere. You say, now, Pastor, here's the difference between me and Simon Peter. Here's the difference between me and John. Here's the difference between me and the men and women of the book of Acts. Is I didn't come off of a spiritual mountaintop. Maybe you say this morning, Pastor, I messed up. I've not done right, I've not honored God, I've not trusted Him, I've not walked with Him, I've not attempted to follow Jesus. And so for that reason, I am convinced that His presence is absent from my life. My closing statement this morning, I want to argue with you momentarily on why there is no truth in such a statement. Did David not begin his discourse in Psalm 139 with the bold declaration that the very God he would later refer to as being completely omnipresent, meaning that he exists everywhere David could ever imagine going to, did David not begin the same discourse and the same conversation by saying, God, you know everything about me? David wasn't a good little church boy. He'd done right his entire life. David was one who sought after another woman that he was not married to and committed adultery with her and tried to cover it up, and his cover-up didn't work, so he had her husband killed, and then he could not control his children because he had forfeited his own moral authority, and his household was dysfunction after dysfunction after dysfunction, but yet David said, God, you have searched me. You know everything about me, and I am convinced you are still with me every single day place that I go. And I argue this morning that not a single one of you here hold a light to the wrongs that had tainted David's spiritual resume. And yet he boldly said, you're there. You're there. As our praise team begins to come, I want to do things just a little bit different as we lead into altar call worship this morning. We begin so many times in scenarios like the one that I'm teaching about this morning. When we face difficulties and trials and persecutions in life, we begin to get frustrated and we we do so much on our own to try to resolve those things. But because of our frustration and because we're embracing an ideology that says God is somehow absent from my life, we fail seek Him. And we just run from fear after fear after fear. Would you stand with me this morning?